0: Hey folks, Rigor here. So what you're about to listen to is a full episode of our special filmmaker series. Normally it's available only on Patreon, but we wanted to give you a chance to hear what you're missing out on. This is part one of our interview with writer David Mish who wrote for Mork and Mindy, Police Squad, and just a bunch of other TV shows and movies. So if you like what you hear when you listen to this episode and you actually want to hear part two, then please go to our website at havenpodcasts.com and hit the Patreon link. Now, on with the show. Hey folks, Rigo here. First of all, I wanted to thank you so much for uh, joining Patreon and you are in for a special treat today. This is our first special episode that we are releasing to Patreon subscribers, so um, you're going to get a cool one every month so please keep coming back for more. This one, we interview the writer David Mish, who wrote for the TV series Mork & Mindy, and Police Squad, and a bunch of other stuff, and the episode was so hilarious, and we went on for so long that it actually came out to two and a half hours. So what we've done is we've split it in half, and uh, right now, you're gonna listen to part one of the David Mish interview, and then next month, we'll release part two. Hope you enjoy.
1: Hi, this is Dee Wallace, and you're listening to the Then Is Now podcast.
0: Hello and welcome to our special filmmaker series that we're doing here on Then Is Now Podcast. I am your host, Rigor. On this series, we talk to directors, producers, writers, composers, special effects people, basically anybody that's behind the scenes in filmmaking so we can get their insights into their craft. This series is being created especially for Patreon subscribers, so thank you for supporting the show, and please get your friends to go to our website at havenpodcasts.com so they can click on the Patreon link and get these exclusive episodes. And as always, you are once again in for another treat, so class is officially in session.
1: I have a bad feeling about this. How could I
0: possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this?
1: Food fight! Hey, you in my class? Oh, yeah, I am today. I think you should consider transferring to Shaw class. Woo-woo! Now, now, very few students are severely injured in Shaw class. Bueller.
0: When you were in school.
1: Bueller. Did you ever
0: cut class?
1: Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes.
0: Good, sign this. Um,
2: he's
1: sick. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance oh, bell rings and all my kids
0: are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no
2: way to go through life, son.
0: You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're going to have recess all the time. Woo!
1: Go! Play and have
2: fun now!
0: Joining me once again is my co-host, filmmaker Chris Esper. Chris, how are you doing today?
2: Hey, thanks for having me
0: on again. Awesome, awesome. I am so looking forward to speaking with today's guest.
2: Yes, as am I.
0: Excellent, excellent. So let's get started. Our guest today is a playwright, a comic folk singer, screenwriter, director, songwriter, blogger, lecturer, teacher, author, and recovered stand-up comic. His writing credits include Mork & Mindy, the pilot for David Letterman's first talk show, Police Squad, Saturday Night Live, Monsters, in which he also directed two episodes, the adult animated series Duckman, which he also produced, and Behind the Camera, the unauthorized story of Mork and Mindy, which he hopes to get authorized soon. He was also a special consultant on the film The Muppets Take Manhattan. He's written for National Lampoon, been collected in the anthology May Contain Nuts, wrote several plays, including The Boomer Boys and Pretty Naked People, and recorded the quasi-legendary song Somerville for Fretless Records. A master of all things comedy, he's written several books, including A Beginner's Guide to Corruption, Funny the Book, and Understanding Comedy, The Rules. He speaks on comedy at at a variety of venues, Yale, the Smithsonian, Oxford, the 92nd Street Y, University of Sydney in Australia, the American Film Institute, the New York Public Library, the Burbank Comedy Festival, and the View Digital Cinema Conference in Torino, Italy, among many other places. And he's taught comedy at USC and UCLA. He's been nominated for two Primetime Emmys for Outstanding Animated Program for Duckman in 1996 and 97, and nominated for a Cable Ace Award in 1995 for the same show, as well as finally winning the Cable Ace for Duckman in 1996. Both those wins he shared with other producers of the show, so I guess they don't really count. Ladies and gentlemen, please join us in welcoming to the show the man Pendulette once said is one funny mother, Mr. David Mish.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, Penn actually had another two syllables after mother, but I (laughs) don't even know what they are anymore. (laughs) Oh, that's
0: hilarious. We're so glad to have you on the show, man.
1: Happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, by the way, that, that was a long and perhaps boring list of credits. Uh, and just one that flitted by (laughs) that brought back a memory. So I did this thing in uh, Torino, uh, a conference and, uh, anyway I was sort of an outlier I was the only one talking about comedy but uh the cool thing was one of the pl- one of the venues where we uh, spoke was a a room in a I go oh, geez what did it used to be it was some some ancient thing and it was a 15th century room uh, restored to its glory and it was all gold and brocade and ancient paintings everywhere It was so classy I'm not used to classy <laughs> so, <laughs> that was fun
0: that's amazing. That's amazing. And just so you know, Chris wore his exploding pants for today just for the show.
1: So. <laughs> well, well, I guess we'll hear if they work.
0: <laughs> so one of the things we always ask for t- first-time guests is, you know, how did, I'm sure you've been asked this a thousand times, but how did you get onto the path of comedy? Was stand-up the first thing that you did?
1: Actually, that is the thousandth time. And there's a balloon drop right oh, here. Oh, awesome. Oh, I see that my room so it's very cool um yeah how did I get into it I started uh I started out as a child to quote an ancient humor book that I loved reading when I was a child um and it, I, I just uh it was really prose that got me into it S.J. Perelman uh, James Thurber I was uh, in awe of uh Benchley of course uh and then I <laughs> gradually discovered movies and uh the Marx Brothers uh first and foremost, and uh, then many other people and things after that, uh, and I was kind of hooked. On the other hand, I went to college and actually learned things and wasn't <laughs> exactly sure what I was gonna do with my life. And when I, I okay, one night in college, uh, there was, we had a coffee house where people performed and I had written some funny songs, which I used to entertain my friends. And they said, you should go to the coffee house. So I did. And I got a great reaction. People just loved it. They were insane. And I thought, wow, I'm really talented. It was only five years later after my stand-up career had been going good but not great that I realized, oh, wait, they were drunk. <laughs> At the coffee house? <laughs> yeah. And all my friends were drunk and screaming, you know, brilliant and cheering. And it's like, no, the whole thing was a lie. And I, I was just very slow catching up to that. But uh, – it was when it was a year or so after college. I had moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts, and they had a beautiful uh, theater there called the Orson Welles Cinema. Oh yeah. Had, uh, two theaters, and it was historic and fantastic. It wasn't historic; it was newly built. But it, they and you know art films were not old films were not really shown back then. In addition to the Orson Welles, there was a theater called the Brattle, which started yeah, yeah. showing Casablanca, which almost yep. no one knew. And the the Brattle was credited with having begun the whole idea of showing old movies in movie theaters. Anyway, the the Wells did that, too. And one day they had a double feature of uh, Duck Soup and Night the Opera. Uh. And I had seen A Hard Day's Night when it came out. And I was in the theater, the movie theater, as the screams were so loud, you couldn't hear what was going on on the screen. Uh, And (laughs) that had always affected me. It's like, wow, it's so exciting and also uh, ear. drumming to be a part of that. But then in the Orson Welles, that happened with the Marx Brothers. They had not been seen really for decades. And the audience went insane. They were laughing so loud. You couldn't hear half the dialogue. And I thought, <laughs> I want to make people make that noise. I just found it extremely pleasing to, to see people so uh at the extreme of happiness basically they had to all wipe off their seats when they were done with the screen <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: so that made me think i want to do something in comedy and i took out my old stupid uh, uh college fun songs and started performing them and didn't get booted off the stage too much and then gradually transitioned to stand-up. That's
0: awesome. That's, That's awesome. awesome. I, I've been to the Brattle hundreds of times and Whoa. I've been to the Orson Welles. I grew up just north of Boston oh. and my, parent, my parents took me to see The House of Wax with Vincent Price in 3D there. Uh-huh. And when we were leaving, I saw a poster for a movie called Parasite in 3D and I'm like, oh, I really want to see that movie. And I do kind of regret that to this day, but either way, that was a great theater.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: So, so did you do all your stand up in New York and in Boston, or did you go to New York or L.A.? When I moved
1: to New York. Uh, I had just sort of. Started, uh, by the way, uh, I should mention uh, for the historical record that uh, one of the uh, uh, songs I did as a quote funny folk singer, a which was once an actual job category, uh, was a <laughs> song called Somerville, which, as you know, is yes. named after a what was then a modest, unpretentious, working-class town called Somerville, which is now a very pretentious, extremely expensive uh, yuppie right. town called Somerville. But in any case, at the time, the idea of a song devoted to Somerville was in itself laughable. Uh, and I wrote a song uh, damning, not damning, but uh, not praising with faint praise. Actually, no, it was praising with... Bland Praise <laughs> in the town of Somerville and it actually caught on and uh, I still have a uh, a trade paper called Radio and Records which listed the playing uh, 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 the playlist for local stations around the country and the one for WBCN in Boston oh, wow. had me listed above Bob Dylan Wow. Well, I was very proud of that until I realized that the listings were simply random. They didn't They yeah. didn't reflect popularity, <laughs> uh, but it was still cool.
2: <laughs> That's anyway, hilarious. so that
1: song is, uh, if anyone cares, it's on the internet for the watching. Uh, it's, Excellent. I mean, for the listening. There's, not, for there's the no listening. video.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. So when you went to New York, did you, uh, did you work at the Improv or any of those famous places?
1: I did, but not much. It was not my me to use to use my native french great work it uh it was uh you know it was the people performing for drunks and working out the same material night after night after night and i just didn't think that was right for me i and i did get out of it after a few years but i always found it a little jarring actually to have the audience love me now, this is what all comedians go for, but on those times that it didn't happen all the time, of course, but once in a while it happened, when it did, I sort of shrunk back. It's like, wait a minute, you don't know me. What the hell? What are you thinking? <laughs> uh, we have no relationship here. And that's not really the attitude comedians go for. Look, I worked with Robin Williams, so you know he subsisted on audience love and I did not. I ended up doing exactly what I should have done, which is shrinking back putting things on paper and letting other people do them and basking in the applause or laughter they got, but not having to do that work myself. So I was not <laughs> really comfortable in the comedy clubs. I did it a bit. Then I moved to LA for more comedy, which we'll discuss, but I continued right. performing for about a year, uh, in between, you know, writing and uh, decided it just wasn't worth it. I just, you know, really was so much more comfortable writing than performing. And I wasn't great, but I was decent. The New Yorker gave me a little write-up, which is pretty cool. And oh, nice. I played some some nice prestigious gigs, but I noticed that the comedy clubs did not go well with me. The jazz clubs did. I opened for huh. Benson and uh, they weren't jazz, but I opened for Talking Heads. I opened for Billy wow. Joel, but this wow. is when Talking Heads and Billy Joel were not super famous. They were like right, right, yeah. known, but still, when I played at the jazz clubs, like with George Benson, and oh, and also the Persuasions, I opened for. When I did that, the audiences really liked it because I think they were more intelligent and less drunk. So because <laughs> my, my humor was a little bit thinky uh and a little offbeat a little python-esque i like to think oh excellent That's excellent
0: awesome. and some of your contemporaries were like milton burl and henny youngman right
1: yeah uh, well, well <laughs> actually this was before there was electricity so you know we're mostly people who had to have strong vocal cords. uh no i was contemporaneous with stephen wright there was a guy okay. I, I, have a, I have a beard uh, and have for many years now, but without the beard, you can see I have a prominent chin and I played a gig with another young man. Uh, we went, we drove out to Worcester together and oh, wow. uh, played oh, a wow. gig uh, with And this guy had an even bigger chin than I did, but who knows what Jay Leno ever got up to after. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: right. What about- and By like, the way, Gil- I was
1: named the most, uh, I was named best comedian in Boston by Boston Magazine and then Jay moved. <laughs>
0: oh that's awesome and that was hilarious what about um like Gilbert Gottfried and uh you know Larry David and all them and uh, it was Gabe Kaplan and John Biner were they just just a generation before you
1: um maybe a half generation before me but remember they weren't I mean when I was a stand-up was almost entirely in New York and Boston so I didn't really know them uh uh, yeah i and i didn't really hang with comics very much so just age wise you know uh it was more stephen wright and uh who are the people in the comedy boom there i actually oh, billy preceded,
0: crystal gary shandling
1: yeah i i pre uh i wouldn't say i preceded I, i'm the same age as billy and uh i worked with him a little bit at snl um shandling i never knew but you know i i i've had a bunch of connections all over and uh Uh, But I don't really hang in comedy uh, comedian circles. I hang in comedy writer circles.
0: Oh, okay. Nice. Okay, so a little birdie told us that you have you used to do some unusual gigs when you were doing comedy. Can you tell us about those?
1: Well, that I mean, you know, when you're trying to make it, uh, I was on the road booking myself all the time. And (laughs) once in a while I got things I I had not been prepared for by the venue into which I booked myself. So one was (laughs) Berkshire Community College. Which I believe had the motto which I've I've just loved my whole life since seeing it. They had this engraved, I think, over a gate or something. It is be- it is better to travel, hopefully, than to succeed. Which I just thought is <laughs> <was> the perfect <laughs> motto for complete losers. <laughs> no, it's better to succeed than to right. travel, hopefully. But anyway, I think it was at Berkshire that I uh, was ushered into the room I was to perform in and it oh, was empty. Geez. And I said, uh, so what time the crowd get here? And they said, don't worry, just start, they'll come. What? I start with an empty, yeah, just start. I don't think they thought very carefully about the difference between a folk singer and a funny folk singer. So anyway, I started and then sure enough, the guy walked in, but he, he looked odd. He was sort of dazed and his, he was pale, not a zombie exactly, but not a healthy human either. And he walked, he walked, he sort of shambled in and then sat on a sofa and there were some cookies and he began eating the cookies. And then another guy came in and a woman and, they, they, and, and all young actually, college age. And gradually it became known to me, I forget how i discovered this, that they were having a blood drive and I had been booked as the entertainment. Oh my God. And after having the blood drained from their bodies, they came in, sat and looked at me. They did not react to me. They did not hear me. They just looked at me until the cookies restored their blood sugar levels. So that was one and then an equally memorable one. and In fact, the exact opposite from the silent one uh, was I was booked and I went in, and they brought me into the cafeteria. This is, again, a community college or state college. And I was uh, brought into the cafeteria and uh, put next to the Coke machine. (laughs) And I said, well, first of all, there's no one here. And second of all, I need a sound system. And they said, Oh, there's no one here because it's not lunchtime. There'll be lots of people here in a little while. I said, Well, what about a sound system? They said, Oh, Oh, I said, you didn't think I needed a sound system in the (laughs) for a performance? I said, Well, we'll work something out. So the guy went to his dorm room and brought back and again, this for people not our age, uh, this will be difficult to envision, but there were phonograph players then. (laughs) Yes, sometimes you had plug in speakers. And so the guy brought in his record player with the speaker and in the other plug was a microphone. So <laughs> there was no mic stand. I think I had to hold it while playing my guitar. I'm not quite sure how I managed <laughs> that. <laughs> and- so and so I did it. So that was that. But then the other thing was, it was a huge din, a huge commotion. There was no stage, there was no spotlight, there was nothing to indicate that the man standing next to the Coke machine had some sort of function in life. It was like I was the town, you know, moron. And I was just allowed to be there because I needed food, I guess. But the only time anyone heard me is when they come up, they came up to get a Coke. And as they did, they would do a little double take and look to their left and think, what is that asshole doing? (laughs) And then the Coke filled up and they walked away. But I got my 50 bucks. So, you know, who's got the last laugh?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So did you did you grow up listening to comedy albums? You know, you mentioned obviously records like Von Meter and Bill Cosby and Jonathan Winters, all them.
1: You know, Cosby's a monster who should be in jail for the rest of his life, which I hope doesn't last that long. But oh, yeah, unbelievably funny. You know, I don't think okay. many people know he won five Grammys in a row. I'm not sure anyone's ever done that. Oh wow, it's unbelievable. Oh, I didn't know that. And uh, so he was huge. Smothers Brothers were very big for me. Yeah. And then just as I was getting into comedy, Steve Martin came along and I knew instantly he yeah. was a god. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to think who else did the uh, the great comedy albums back. Oh, then. Uh, Bob
0: Newhart did stand, a few. Uh, oh, of
1: course. Newhart. Yeah. yeah. The one and only the first one yeah. was called. And uh, yeah, those incredible telephone routines. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have all yeah.
0: those albums, you know, like I yep. said, Von Meter, although his his um, his career was cut short when the president died.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, I believe there was some comedian maybe it was Mort Saul who who said the Kennedy assassination was such a tragedy for Vaughn meter
0: yeah oh yeah yeah because that was his whole thing was doing the first family you know and, yeah and there's so many so a lot of those inspired you into getting into comedy
1: yeah I, I don't know why I just flashed in my head Von meter was uh, evidently met with JFK and uh, JFK said uh uh, uh meter said "Do you think that i've captured your voice accurately he said no you sound a little more like teddy to me <laughs> 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 that's great but anyway yeah they were a huge influence absolutely although i didn't really do say even my stand-up was not. i didn't have really almost any jokes i had one joke here was my one joke I broke up with my girlfriend a little while ago. It was very painful. We had different religious beliefs. She was an atheist. And at the time, I thought I was God. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> awesome. So that was it. And then everything else was weird things like, I'm trying to remember, I ended up realizing I sort of stole this. Oh, I stole it from Jackie, not Mason, Jack, uh, who was the other big Jewish comic then? Oh. He was on Sullivan. Uh, uh, uh... Uh, who am I thinking of? The guy who did the f- f- slideshow. Oh, he he had a click, went click, click. And then he would describe the slide. uh, Well, anyway, whoever it was, I realized without realizing it that I stole one of my favorite bits, which I opened my act with was stolen from him. I would hold up a literal slide. I say, I'm going to show you (laughs) some slides of my family. Then I hold up a little slide and and go on from there. Uh, But anyway, yeah, they were, you know, comedy really got big uh, around then.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Did you ever get a chance in yeah,
1: late 70s, early 80s? Did
0: you ever get a chance to meet anybody like Jackie Mason or even Groucho Marx, for that matter?
1: No, I, I have a friend who tells a story uh, who uh, his mother was gorgeous and uh, was connected to the comedy world and Groucho dated her uh, once. And he was a little kid and he was drawing on the floor of their living room. And Groucho came to pick her up, but she was upstairs getting ready. And he sat down and my friend knew who he was he was my friend was very young but he 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 thought groucho was the greatest and he sort of sidled closer and closer to groucho hoping to engage him in conversation and the punchline of the story is nothing happened <laughs> mother came down and they went out and that was it so a really disappointing story but he was in the same room with groucho i also did have a um a, a, a um Geez, what was the Letterman phrase? A brush with greatness. Oh, there you go. Um, which was uh, my brother and I were about 12 and we were in uh, the uh, Hotel Fountain Blue on a family vacation, but we were, my parents were out for the night and we were just exploring the grounds and activities for teenagers. It was boring. So we went to the uh, gift shop and bought some comic books and uh, we were in the elevator going back to our room and my brother Donald was reading a Three Stooges comic book, and a voice came from behind and below us, pretty good comic, eh, kid? And we turn around, and there's nothing. And then we look down, and there's Moe. Mo, uh, Mo wow, Howard wow. with his arm around, meaning his arm way up, because that's the only way he could put his arm around the waist of the date he had, who was like six feet, and he was five one.
2: <laughs> wow. Um,
1: but anyway, my brother facing one of the greatest cinema talents of all time uh, was only able to get out the words house tricks. And I oh. tormented him with that for the next 20 years.
0: That's, awesome. <laughs> that's amazing. It just occurs to me, was Jackie Vernon the one you were referring to? Yes.
1: Jackie Vernon. That's right. Yep. That's I,
0: I knew it would come yeah. to me eventually. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So you could have called me tonight. I'm open till three. Okay, great.
0: (laughs) Chris, I don't know if you know, but off mic we were talking about we he can only do six hours. I was saying seven, but he's thinking (laughs) around six. So nice. (laughs) So, David, how did you go from doing the stand up comedy into the um, actual writing of, you know, comedy, for lack of a better term? (laughs)
1: Yeah, someone really important in the comedy world encouraged me to get out of it. Um, (laughs) one, One really kind of, so I was opening for some friends of mine from Boston. We moved from Boston to New York more or less together. And they were the hottest act in town, and I was opening for them. It was so amazing in this club. Uh, sometimes I would have to leave five or six. I would leave, have to get from the back of the club to the stage. It would take me 10 minutes to push my way through this crowd. They threw the fire regulations out the door and just tried to cram as many people in as they could. Oh, my God. And uh, wow. the name of the act was Storm and Norman and Susie there. And I'm still close to both mm-hmm. Norman and Susie. And they were wonderful. They opened for a Manhattan transfer at Carnegie Hall. And, oh, wow. Dylan's manager came to scout them, Bette Midler tried to get them to sell one of their songs. It was really an exciting time. And one night, uh, some people from SNL came. There was a a town scout and Dan Aykroyd, who I didn't recognize. I said, oh, are you with the show too? (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, but also, there was a manager there. His name was Buddy Mora, and he uh, managed some of the biggest acts in the biz. Uh, along with, Well, he was partners with Jack Rollins and Charles Joppy, two incredibly famous guys who produced all of Woody Allen's movies oh, and yeah. uh, won a bunch of Oscars. And yep. Yep. But they all managed, uh, let's see, Woody Allen, David Letterman, Billy Crystal, uh, Martin Mull. Uh, oh, wow. wow. Geez, there are there one or two other really but the, their names escape me now. And they end up manage, managing me. They had like 12 incredibly famous performers and one totally unknown writer. So it was a lot to live up to. And I didn't, but in any case, <laughs> uh, it was very exciting being with them. They had a, um, a, a their, their comedy roster uh, they had sketches made of everyone all on one piece of paper. Oh, and Robin Williams. Oh, wow. And uh, oh, yeah. so there we all were. And every one of them is someone you recognize except me. I think <laughs> I saw a copy of that. Anyway, um, so, uh, yeah. he, uh, Buddy, I, uh, he saw I only could do 10 minutes because there were so many people. They didn't have time for full shows anymore to get people <laughs> in and out. So I just did 10 minutes. That was a 10 minutes. The New Yorker reviewed favorably. And he said, yeah, I liked it. But, you know, I think I need to see some more. Uh, I'm not sure you're ready yet. And I said, also, I've written some sketches. You want to see them? He said, sure. And I sent him one, which he pronounced the funniest thing he'd ever read, which I was really complimented by because he read a lot of stuff. And he said, I can get you work. Come to LA. So I was preparing to come to LA. And he called and said, I got you work. Two shows are bidding for you. One of them hmm. is a sitcom about an alien, and the other one is the Osmond Brothers show. And <laughs> I, it was like a rock and a hard place because the Osmond Brothers were white bread and you know dumb, and they weren't hip and fun. But it was Provo, which was they lived. A, the show was shot in Provo, Utah, one of the most beautiful places in the world, right. and it would be a high-paying gig in primetime TV. Yeah, and the other one what, a new version of my favorite Martian? Right. Who is calling for that? It's the stupidest <laughs> thing I've ever heard of. I was <laughs> dreading that, but I had nothing to say about it. They had a bidding war and Mork and Mindy won out and I, and to ease my anguish. But he said, um, you know, actually the guy who's starring in it, we manage and he's pretty good. And uh, that turned out to be more or less true. <laughs> i met with robin because we were both managed by the same guy and i met with him in the parking lot of the comedy store before Mork began before we'd even begun really writing and uh he said um he told me his hopes for the show he said we're gonna really bring hip tv uh, hip comedy to tv we're gonna really be edgy and out there and i may not have known much at that point but I knew that wasn't going to (laughs) happen. So I said, absolutely. That sounds great. And it didn't happen, but, and you know, the other thing about Mork is I don't want to trash my own show because it was a good show and I'm proud of having done it, but it's really Robin. I'm not sure that those scripts were so brilliant in and of themselves. It needed Robin to give them life. So, even though he did not ad-lib the whole show, which is the legend that got out there, it, he didn't ad-lib almost anything. Uh, most of his ad-libs were grabbing his crotch and saying, fuck.
0: Uh, so,
1: <laughs> and if you want to see that, you can go to YouTube and see the gag reel, the legendary gag, sure. season one yeah. gag reel, and you can see him in action. Oh, that's awesome. It's utterly hilarious. It is. But <laughs> it couldn't go, get on TV. That's so. Awesome. um I give Robin full credit for it although I give us credit for the writing uh, as good as you know you think it was that was indeed us. <laughs> That's awesome.
0: I mean, I remember that when he was uh, a guest star on Happy Days, before we even knew it was going to be show a show, and then I remember being excited hearing, oh, my God, they're taking this character and spinning him off into his own show. And But, you know, it's funny. When you think about sci-fi comedy shows, I mean, you mentioned My Favorite Martian, and I was racking my brain trying to think about what other sci-fi comedies there were at that time. I mean, you had It's About Time with Frank Letter and Jack Mullaney. Oh, yeah. Um, if you want to stretch it, there was the Far Out Space Nuts with, you know, Ruth Buzzy and I'm sorry, the Lost Saucer with Ruth Buzzy and Jim Neighbors and Far Out Space Nuts had Chuck McCann and and Gilligan, uh, Bob Denver. Those were Sid, Sid and Marty Cruft's Saturday morning shows, not prime time. And yeah. the only other one I could find online because I had a look was Quark with Richard Benjamin, which I vaguely remember. But I mean, which
1: you, was a little later, I think, I at th- least a couple of years later. I think it
0: was. Yeah, it was either before or after Mork. But you guys were blazing a trail with a science fiction comedy.
1: Yes, but there was not a lot of sci-fi in it. The premise was sci-fi. but sure. And then, you know, the gags of his being able to drink with his finger. And but we tried to keep that to a minimum. It was mostly and, the, you know, the uh, TV show Perfect Strangers literally stole the premise of just someone who doesn't know anything right. learning about a culture. Right. So that was by far the major comedy thing. When, uh, in season two, we opened with a truly sci-fi episode, it was a disaster. Oh, it just wasn't right. such a great episode. Yeah. And uh, hmm. it, it wasn't that funny. So the question of, uh, of how to combine sci-fi with comedy is still a bit open, although it's been done a lot more in recent years. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah.
2: Well, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm from a you know younger generation. I more or less was... Um, uh, 90s kid, and uh, I found I, I discovered more community in my teenage years. Um, actually, thanks to my dad, because he knew I was a Robin Williams fan. Saw the show, and uh, you know, first of all, I loved it, always did, still do. You know, and I'm glad you mentioned the myth because you know, there was always that myth of um, you know, the writers in the script would put Robin would do Robin does this thing over here, which of course is yeah. not true. You know, you all worked hard, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. We were up till, our, our line was, we were up till three in the morning, writing those ad-libs. <laughs> but, and you know, and Robin never claimed it for himself. He never claimed he ad-libbed it. And I'll tell you in, in real life, aside from what he would have said publicly and privately, he would have yelled, well, he didn't do that. He was really a cool guy, but he would have been extremely unhappy if we had said ad-lib your way through this scene, oh, because yeah. he wanted things to work off, first of all. Second of all, the other actors were not improvisers. And third of all, in those days, I mean, TV was much more rigid and there were marks to hit. There were camera angles to set up. They simply couldn't accommodate genuine improvisation. I left the show after year two and by year four, there was genuine improvisation because they brought in Jonathan Winters who was Robin's idol and uh, it didn't work so well. It, it, It was exactly what we feared, which is essentially one would say the other, tell me about that dream you had last night. And then they just go crazy, but they hadn't prepared anything. They were just counting on the spur of the moment. And anyone who goes to improv and comedy clubs knows that if you get 50% funny, you're doing well, it's, it's hit or miss. And, you know, I've heard that they shoot like a 10 to one ratio for curb your enthusiasm that uh, they throw out 10 times as much material as they end up keeping because most ad libs aren't funny. Right, right.
0: And yeah. is it true? Also,
1: that- look at the Judd, sorry, look at the Judd Apatow uh, outtakes from his films that he has often at the end. And you can see, and those oh, are the yeah. ones they are keeping for the outtakes. Yeah. Uh, and they're often not that great.
0: Yeah, that's right. true. That's true. Right. Is it true that Gary Marshall had to add a fourth camera because Robin Williams was just so yeah. all over the place?
1: He did. Uh, he and it, you know it wasn't so much that Robin was all over the place as that Robin wanted to be all over the place. Yeah. The director was a great guy named Howard St- uh, oh, Howard Stern. Not quite. <laughs> right. Howard, uh, Howard Oh Storm. my God! Why am I spacing on this name? Some How- Howard Storm. Look up, uh, Howard Storm. Yes, it's cl- similar to Stern. Let's be honest. Yes, yeah, there you yeah. go. Yeah. Anyway, Howard was, Howard was a great guy, and he was uh, he had been in the committee in San Francisco, so he knew improv, and Robin loved him. And they worked together great. And he was the one who pushed for a fourth camera, so he would have a little more freedom in shooting. And Robin could move. But Rob was a very physical. Robin was a very physical guy, and he didn't want to be rooted to the spot as you often are in sitcoms. Right, right. Um, but it, it, the uh, it, wait, I was going to say something else about improv, but I've forgotten it, so I'll improv my way out of it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh man, yeah, fourth camera. So um, you know, I know we've got a lot to cover here, but I just wanted to ask you about the cast. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, uh, you know, everyone's going to ask you about uh, Robin Williams and Pam Dawber and all that, but I got to know about Robert Donner, who played Exeter, because I always oh loved—he was brilliant—the the character. Yeah, and I loved when he showed up in a western as a heavy. I was, I always was like, oh my god, it's Exeter. <laughs>
1: well yeah except it was really the other way around he was one of clint eastwood's regulars yeah and he had never done comedy i don't know how dale mccraven the showrunner got the idea to cast him in uh, the (laughs) morgue but over a weekend dale wrote a script and invented the character exeter i think out of desperation we were often desperate uh and i can tell (laughs) stories about that but um he uh, uh Up till that point, there was a very hard and fast rule to which I and April Kelly, the other younger writer on the staff, greatly objected, which is that you can't have anyone else uh, be wacky in any way because Robin's the wacky one. And we kept (laughs) saying, Robin is not going to be bested by someone we bring in. It's impossible. Bringing someone in who's interesting Uh, and and offbeat in some way is only going to enhance the humor, but they didn't buy that until Exodor came and Exodor Exodor triumphed. (laughs) Uh, But as an example of that, we had a huge uh, disagreement, April and I with the rest of the staff and especially the showrunners about um, the uh, character of Mindy. Uh, Mindy had, as far as we could tell, no job, no friends. That's true. She would say, okay, I got to go now. But we had no idea what she was going to She worked <laughs> as a prostitute during the day. It's like, <laughs> and so uh, we, we were asked to write a, a description of Mindy for some publication. <laughs> we wrote a fake one to get it out of our systems. And I remember we were looking for the most bland at, at uh, the, the blandest adjectives we could think of and the one I remember especially liking was exceptionally brown haired. <laughs> and Pam knew it, too. The The reason Pam was able to triumph is that she's, first of all, a lovely person that came through. And second mm-hmm. of all, she loved and was endlessly uh, amused by Robin, which also came through. So their genuine relationship. Uh, anchor the show and made her so lovable, but she had nothing. Mork, what are you doing? All we had to do, if only we had macros, then we could have just put that in every right. other line. <laughs> That's great.
0: <laughs> oh, man. And, you know, I heard that Conrad Janice was an actual uh, jazz player.
1: He was. Yeah. Uh, he had the, the Beverly Hills something jazz band, and also in it was a guy named George Siegel who just died a few months ago. Uh, was a huge movie star oh, in yeah. the 60s, and uh, he and I ended up producing a, a show that he starred in, uh, very briefly uh, lived, but uh, it, anyway, the, uh, Conrad was, and also his father was Sidney Janice who ran one of the most prestigious art galleries in uh, England, in uh, New York. Oh, wow. So um, Conrad was a very interesting guy, cultured and smart, uh, and also given... I don't think almost anyone had anything to do first season except Robin, and then second season, Gary brought in um, uh, <clears throat> two other characters who were supposed to have what we had been begging for, which is character and eccentricities, and they just weren't right. The actors were great, but they were they were given nothing to play. One of them was Gina Hecht, who uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, still in touch with, and mm-hmm. I remember when we first met up again after thirty years. Uh, I said, let's let's talk more for a second. So, uh, what did you think of the situation? And she said, Did you guys hate me? I said, what? What, do you, what do you mean? Did we hate you? And you said, You gave me nothing. I had nothing to do. And we said, I know, I know, I know, I know. You were the girl. You were the, you're supposed to be interesting, but all you could be was the girl. Whenever we tried to give you something, it ended up not getting in. So oh, she man. felt relieved, actually, <laughs> that she had not been hated by the writing stuff. That's hilarious. She, you know, she wow. was on
0: General Hospital a few years ago as a judge. Oh. I think it was Judge Lasser. And it was funny because I'm watching it going, I know her. I know her from somewhere. And I finally had to look it up. I'm like, oh, my God, it's Gina Hecht. Oh, my God.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to get her And by the way, the it's, a hard, it's hard G. Gina.
0: Gina. Gina Hecht. Yeah.
1: <laughs> like, uh, wait, who's the woman on... Uh, on uh, a community, who I love so much. Oh, I don't want uh, that. Either. Oh my God, a great show! You should check it out. But she has a hard, uh, hard letter in there where it's not supposed to be.
0: That's right.
1: Anyway, um, uh, so oh, I'm just just thought Alison Brie, but that's not it. The other one. Anyway, um, so yeah, the uh, the cast was uh, was great, but had nothing to do. the uh, The grandmother was played by a woman named Elizabeth Kerr, and she yep, was yep. hired because she had a commercial out. Where someone said something and in the commercial she responded, You wiener. Yeah and this and on right, the show. Yeah. The equivalent of a meme in uh, nineteen seventy-eight. <laughs> so in the first few episodes, we were directed to have her say you wiener to someone every episode. One day I'm walking to my car, which is in a, a parking area just away from the stages, but cast members, actors, got to park by the stages. And Elizabeth Kerr comes driving up next to me in in her, I think, sporty convertible. Uh, and <laughs> she leaned out the window and almost in tears, they said, please don't make me say wiener again. <laughs> That's great. That's amazing.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, you had a, a lot of other greats, you know, Jay Thomas, who also oh, used yeah. to be a radio DJ. Yeah. And... Mm-hmm.
1: and Jay was great. And, oh, yeah. Uh, I, Came somewhat friends with him in later years, but he was given very little to do.
0: Right, right. Same with Tom Poston. You know, he was. Yes. Didn't he make greeting cards? Yeah. That was his thing.
1: M- yeah. Mr. And Bitty? he had some funny bits, actually. Uh, Tom was really a prince among men, and I'd grown up watching him. And what was it? Fifth, uh, fifth. Or wait, what was the name? it? Zao. It was a side, oh. It was a thing where he could stop time by snapping his fingers or something. Right, right. Oh, I can't remember it off the top of my head. I can't but remember. Yeah. It had a one-word title, but anyway, he was terrific. He was also managed by Ron Stafy and uh, uh, a great guy. Uh, he played a drunk, green card guy the first season. I was uh, the first season he was on, which was my second season. Then when I left, they said we can't make fun of drunks, so he lost almost the only characteristic he had. <laughs> By the way, I remember one, uh, some of our best writing was done under the threat of humiliation. And uh, I'll get back to the one with Tom, Uh, but actually I'll do the Tom one first. So we had a story uh, that we gave to a freelancer and the freelancers often simply could not get the show at all. And this script came in horrible. And April Kelly and I had one weekend to rewrite it because the show shot on a Thursday, and Friday we sort of worked things out, and then Monday was a table read. So we um, completely rewrote the script in one weekend, and it came out great. We gave, a, the idea was that Mork uh, had adopted a worm, I think, as a pet. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I think it was a worm, something like that. And uh, he had to give a funeral funeral That's oration, right. and we knew he loved George Jessel, who was a famous nice. comic at the time, who was famous for his funeral oration. So George he did it lovely. in the voice of George Jessel, yeah. and the audience was in stitches, and we were very, <laughs> very pleased. The other show we had to rewrite, uh, and, and it was really all hands on deck, the red lights and buzzers were going like crazy, it was the season of Jiggle, which was seventy nine eighty. Uh, Charlie's Angels came on the air and all the ABC shows had to have Jiggle, which for those of you young people was women's breasts bouncing. Right. uh, (laughs) If I may be blunt. By the way, I have a great piece of trivia, completely irrelevant. I'm just going to throw it in here. Do you know how Emma Peel on The Avengers got her name?
0: No. When
1: uh, the original female uh lead on the avengers uh left for the movies uh honor black honor Blackman, Blackman, yeah. uh, they had to replace her and the show the producer was sitting around and someone said you know whoever it is has to have male appeal m appeal Uh, and that's working ah wow that's (laughs)
0: crazy anyway
1: so our m appeal was raquel welch we got raquel welch and Everyone knew she A couldn't act and B couldn't do comedy. Although years <laughs> later, Richard Lester got a fantastic comedy performance out of her in the three and four musketeers. That's movies. That's right. Yep. Yeah. But in any case, so she came in and, Oh, I have some Rocky stories, but, uh, she's still alive. So I guess I, I probably shouldn't tell them. But she, <laughs> was, she was quite a piece of work. I think I'll tell this one. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> this one is not actually libelous. I don't think, uh, <laughs> We, the idea is she was going to play a sexy space commander and she mm. makes her entrance flanked. Actually, her two lieutenants come out first and then she comes out. <laughs> so we've got some beautiful women. One was a, play, a play, playmate of the year. The other one was one of Bob Fossey's top dancers. And they were going to come out, strutting their stuff, stand there, and then Raquel Welch comes out. Who could triumph even over these gorgeous women? Right. So that wasn't how Ms. Welch saw it. And after the um, uh, table read, she said, uh, and the actors had gone. It was just the writers and producers. And she said, you know, I I just had a great idea for the entrance. How about if we all come out together and they're wearing dog masks? (laughs) (laughs) great idea i just hope we can get masks formulated by showtime and who knew it turned out we couldn't and then the one other uh, rocky story i'll tell is, i can call it rocky because you know we had sex so um, <laughs> the one other story was in one scene we had but oh i know this all got started because i was going to say we it, it was a terrible script and a terrible exploitative show and we thought we were going to be raked over the coals by our cohorts and just it was so humiliating to write this stupid sex bomb show uh for mork and mindy so we all worked as hard as we could and believe it or not i am still proud of that script yes it still has the sex things in it but it's genuinely funny everyone on the show did a really good job because they were so terrified (laughs) (laughs) of but anyway one scene that i think was in the original that sort of made it to the final was that uh she was going to torture him How was she going to torture him as all torture uh, happens, except maybe a Gitmo. I think they didn't do this a Gitmo, which is having a spa, a hot tub, and putting the man in it, and then having the sexiest woman on the planet rub him all over. That was what it was. That was the torture.
2: So they played
1: the scene. As I recall, we did have some funny lines in there to try to distract people from the horribleness of the whole thing. But anyway, it was over. (laughs) and howard storm the director said okay that's a wrap let's go to the next scene and robin called out and he he said okay out of the tub and let's go to the next scene and robin said i'm afraid we can't do that right now (laughs) oh man well he was happy to see her you know
0: (laughs) he was
1: very happy to see her robin and uh i i was a protein human being he uh he had a healthy sex life and uh a he, you know, in the you can see it in the uh, the outtakes that uh, he just was grabbing his crotch constantly. Oh jeez! It just needed attention from someone, and if there was no one else, he'd do it himself.
0: <laughs> oh man! By the way, real quick, um, regarding t- uh, uh, Tom Poston, the movie was Zots.
1: Yes, Zots. He gets the Absolutely. amulet
0: with magic powers, and I remember that now because Jim Backus was in that.
1: Oh yeah, Thurston the III.
0: Yep. Oh yes, and uh, Mr. Magoo. Yeah. Among other things. So Chris, did you have any more Mork and Mindy questions here? Um, well I'd love to know about the um the uh TV movie, the um
2: unauthorized um
1: Oh yeah, the behind the camera thing. Well this was, you know, many years later and I was hired uh to do uh the story of how Mork and Mindy came to be. And uh, it was a comedy drama because we dealt with Robin's cocaine abuse, and uh, there was the first dramatic scene I'd ever written where he is confronted by his—I uh, can't remember if she was his girlfriend then or his wife—but in, in the movie. But in any case, uh, you know the movie is okay. Uh, I what I wrote uh, did not always make it into the final script, but some of it <laughs> did. Uh, I remember I was at a party with Gina Hecht. Uh, Soon after the movie came out, and she was saying, "Did you see that horrible Morgan Mindy movie? Oh my God, it was so stupid." And she was saying it to me. There were like three other people in the circle, but I said, "Well, yes, I saw it." Oh man! All right, I'm going to ruin the party. But I don't agree with her. I thought it was a I thought it was a mediocre movie, not a terrible movie. <laughs> well I- <laughs> and i'm very proud of what i i had a few things i was proud of including at, first of all they hired me essentially because they couldn't mimic robin's voice very well and they thought they would hire someone who had done it to do it and i did that i think but the uh, great line i thought was at the end the idea is he uh, beat cocaine in real life he did beat it but then he fell back into it uh, a number of times in his life. He was an addictive personality, but he, he didn't want to be and he fought it a lot. Right. But anyway, at the end, uh, he's walking out of the studio after he's kicked it and uh, a shadowy figure comes up to him and says, hey, Robin, you want, you want some blow? And he says, yes, and then walks away. Oh, geez. I thought yeah. that was pretty cool. Yeah. But um, in any case, uh, it was uh, an interesting experience. The whole thing was contingent on finding a morgue. How can you find someone to play Robin Williams. And they said, We won't make the movie. The network said, We won't make the movie until you can, unless you can find someone. And the audition process was, you know, endless. And we got the tapes, and I was sort of the guy who was supposed to judge. And uh, I, we got a tape from New York from a guy named Chris Diamantopoulos. And hmm. he fucking nailed it. It was incredible. He said Robin was his idol. He'd studied him, he'd imitated him a million times long before we asked for someone to play him. And he did a terrific job. He ended up doing uh, some more things. He was on, uh, what was it? Episodes? Was it? Or Nip Tuck? One of those shows, oh, okay. early cable shows. And he did very well, but I, I don't think he's still active. But he he did a great job. And uh, it, it was amazing. It sort of took a little bit of the shine off Robin because I had always thought he was inimitable. But he right. imitated him very effectively.
0: Well it was definitely better than the uh, Abbott and Costello biopic with Harvey Coleman and Buddy Hackett so oh, oh my we God. You.
1: <laughs> Well you know but all, my hero is Buster Keaton and there was a Donald O'Connor loved him and was cast in the Buster Keaton story right and it was terrible just beyond belief horrible but it made Buster solvent for the rest of his life So we're all, all Keaton fans are grateful for that movie.
0: That's true, true. that's yeah, true. true. So let's move on to Police Squad, because hands down, it's one of my favorites, you know, with that and an airplane next to Monty Python's Flying Circus. I mean, I still quote, you know, Police Squad to this day and airplane and all those. And I, I was heartbroken when it got canceled. I can't believe it was only six episodes, because as a kid, it felt like a lot more. Because, um, you know, Buddy my, and I used to watch it religiously. And, you know, we got, obviously, except for the adult humor, we got a lot of the humor. But... You know, like, um, you know, Frank Drebin going, well, we're sorry to bother you at such a time like this, Mrs. Twice. We would have come earlier, but your husband wasn't dead then. You know, (laughs)
1: that was great. I can't take credit for that, but I will. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it was it was wonderful because uh, finally, uh, Mork was a great experience, but Police Squad, I was working with people my age who were genuinely hip and had written and directed uh, one of the funniest movies in history, Airplane. And uh, so I was, and by the way, Police Squad was going to be their second movie, but they couldn't sell it. So they reconfigured it as a TV series. Um, But anyway, it was a great experience. I I can remember a few things. One was um, we were put into three person writing teams. None of the staff, well, there were, I guess just just two, two. there there were six staff writers and they were arbitrarily divided into three person teams. I was made the titular head of one of the teams. But the real thing is, what the hell? What, why are we three-person teams? Why can't we just be writers like on every other TV show? Right, and right. Zucker, Abram, Zucker, or Z-A-Z as they were right. called by us, said, oh, it's very simple. Uh, you have to have a three-person team writing a comedy because that way there is a deciding vote. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> because, you know, if two people think it's not funny and one person does, it's not funny. But anyway, don't they just hire a seventh person <laughs> Yeah, that would have been the simplest, but anyway, that caused a a little bit of friction, but basically we we had a wonderful time doing it and uh, the scripts, because writers were doing it, the scripts were followed religiously to a syllable. Joe Dante directed one of my episodes, and that was uh, great. He did a wonderful job, and uh, it was great working with Leslie Nielsen, who um, uh, it's now quite well known, but uh, at one time wasn't. Uh, he, He lived his life accompanied by a joy buzzer. Yes. So when you shook hands with him for the first time, there was a, a fart. Well, actually, it wasn't a joy noise. It was a fart. fart machine. Right. So you got a, <laughs> pfft, when you shook his hand for the first time and he thought <laughs> that was the funniest thing ever. Yeah. Uh, it got a little old. <laughs> by the way, you say you watched all six episodes, but I don't think you did initially. It was a summer show, I think. Right. Wait, was it summer? But I, it was only four episodes. There were two extra that weren't shown. It was canceled oh, so quickly, really? and then it was shown. I think maybe in reruns they showed all six.
0: Okay, I know um, I've definitely in the you know since then seen them.
1: But there are a few uh, a few legends about Police Squad. one, oh, and by the way, in myself aggrandizing mode, if you're interested, the legendary seventh episode of police squad which was commissioned and written and by me and was going to be directed solo by me but then the show was canceled after six which i think they knew there was a chance of it happening (laughs) anyway that's available on my website there's a tv section go there and then go to um police squad and there at the bottom there's a link and you can get a pdf of the entire script which has was discovered a year or two ago by a bunch of ma- uh, online sites like Vulture and things like that who pronounced it funny.
0: Anyway, so uh, <laughs> you
1: see the, uh, the police squad that never was. We were up against Mannix, which was a huge hit. Oh yeah. And uh, uh, so when people say that police squad wasn't popular, I don't think that's true. We didn't win our time slot and therefore we didn't do great, but we were up against a, a, hu- a top 10 hit. The other uh, interesting thing is that uh, John Belushi was friends with a man named Tino Insana who is one of my writing team. And they had been in a comedy team once and he came over to the set a few times in the last weeks of his life. Uh, He even uh, drunkenly threw the drummer in our rap party, threw the there was a band and he threw the drummer off the drum set so he could drum. The drummer was our PA. It was like not a nice thing to do, but yeah, he was drunk. Also, by the way, he looked horrible. If he didn't die, oh it would God. have been a shock. He just it was so clear. And then I recreated, you know, his death uh, with um, in the Robin Williams movie because. Right. Uh, yeah, because that was a, a big uh, thing where Robin was the second to last person to see him alive. Wow! Uh, in Robert De Niro's hotel suite, and um, there was a, a, a there were some moments where it sounded like he might be arrested on suspicion of murder. <laughs> Jesus oh, Christ! But it, he was not <laughs> guilty of murder. He was not there when it happened, and he got out of it. But in any case, uh, so Belushi was there and he asked ZAZ if uh, people who don't know, police squad opened with a a thing, a card that says special guest star and then it would say Robert Goulet and it would show Robert Goulet getting killed and then he didn't appear in the show. Uh, And they did that six times. And Belushi (laughs) said, I'd like to do one. And they said, and ZAZ told us to us, we weren't in the room when it happened, but they said, uh, how would you like to die and he said a uh, drug overdose oh god <laughs> wow and they said you know it's an eight o'clock thursday show we can't really do that uh so he said how about drowning and they said okay and they did <laughs> they shot <laughs> the thing of john belushi being drowned but he died a few weeks later and they either buried or uh, eliminated the footage it's never wow. been seen wow
0: oh, but he actually shot wow,
1: That's, wow. I, I love that like
0: you know special guest star Lauren green and then the car stops and drops his body out and he's rolled rolls over with a knife in his chest
1: right <laughs> it was great and by the way uh i i'm a pretty cocky guy and i think i got most of the answers where comedy is concerned and i learned uh quite a few things from zaz one is the Johnny, the shoe boy running gag. <laughs> I said, you know, it's funny the first time, but please. And they said, no, it's funny every time. And right. they were right. <laughs> and uh, what was the other one that I was really skeptical about? Oh, I never got <laughs> see you next Wednesday, but that was a, an in-joke that they insist on having in every... <laughs> uh, there was another... Ah, what was the other thing I disagreed with them about and was totally wrong? Was it Nordberg oh, yeah, in I know. The freeze frame ending. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, I just thought, again, that would get old, and it so didn't. And they were able to build on it a bit, and I wrote two of them for the two shows I wrote. Uh, I, and I wrote with the team, of course. But, uh, yeah, those things were, were very funny and great fun to shoot. The The, the big challenge with shooting it was that people would start to crack up. Yeah. Uh, Did you write the
0: one with the chimpanzees that's going nuts in the freeze frame? I
1: don't remember if that was me or not. I think maybe not.
0: (laughs) I remember the coffee, pouring the coffee and it just, they kept pouring, but they were freeze framed.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) I don't remember. If I looked at the scripts, I could probably remember or the TV show itself. I could remember better. The main one I remember was in the boxing show. Um, Drebin comes into a bar and, uh, sits down on a stool, which is too low for him. And the bartender says, well, you have. And he says, screwdriver. And the bartender, hands him a screwdriver. And he reorients the stool. <laughs> that was my g- Oh, oh and, and, and one gag I did not write. One of the other members of my team was Robert Wool, W-U-H-L, who was yes. a well-known comic at the time. And uh, he wrote a, a scene where we have the sexy saxophone lead into yes. a scene. And uh, they're in the locker room uh, before the big fight for the boxer, who's the uh, protagonist in this episode. And uh, Drevin, who's his manager, comes in and says, Come on now, no sax before a fight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I should oh, have man. said he's playing the saxophone. Anyway. <laughs> I love that. Like
0: in Airplane, too, like the, just this, that show in Airplane, the, the, um, the jokes. Are ones that you can retail. Like I'll do stuff like if someone offers me, you know, something like you know chewing gum. uh, Yes, it is, you know. Or or there was was one time when my kids were younger. They're now in their late teens and twenties, and um, I said something. I forget exactly what it was, but I'll just, for example, say, you know, this is an entirely different thing altogether, and without
1: even me saying anything, the kids go,
0: "This is an entirely different thing."
1: The, the danger in that, which, you know, given we only had six episodes, we never really bumped up against, but I always said, what we have to be careful of is you have a line of dialogue, be quiet, the walls have ears, and you know what the next shot's going to be. <laughs> so you have to be adroit and not re- repeat exactly the same kind of joke too often.
0: And I I have to say, David, my son said, when I told him I was going to interview you tonight with Chris, he said, um, he goes, well, you got to ask him about the cast. He goes, you know, Leslie Nielsen, Frank North, and and Rex Hamilton. I want to know about Rex Hamilton.
1: (laughs) Uh, As Abraham Lincoln. Exactly. (laughs) I loved, you know, I think it's the first time I ever saw that, where someone just had a random burning body run through the frame. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) And dangerous.
0: (laughs) Oh, too. But you managed, you know, a lot of people over the years since then have tried to emulate that ZAZ style of humor. But yeah, you fucking nailed it, man. I mean, you you got yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> and I
1: tried to get my own going because I thought I can milk this cow some more, but uh, never was able to. I wanted to do, a, I wanted to do before Children's Hospital, which, by the way, is one of my favorite shows ever. I pitched a Children's Hospital thing in which it was all going to be children and uh, all <laughs> ZAZ style humor didn't sell. But uh, the closest, to, you know, I shouldn't even say the closest, but the most successful was oh my god, what's the name? Steve Carell created it, and uh, what's her name um, starred in it? The uh, uh, woman from Parks and Rec. I can't think of her name. Uh, she hmm. was the nice one on Parks and Rec.
0: I never watched that show either. Yeah, I mean, yeah, anyway, <laughs> it was a
1: uh, it, it was a a procedural. She was uh, uh, wait uh, Soho. No, not Soho. It was a. The name of the show was the name of a New York neighborhood, and that was her name in it. Is no oh. one googling this now? <laughs> I,
0: I'm. I'm looking it up. I'm looking speech. up too. Um, <laughs> and Steve Carell produced it. Yeah. Was it he Angie described. Tribeca?
1: Yes. Okay. Tribeca. I said Soho. I was so close. Yeah. Anyway, that was. <laughs> I heard it had come out, and it didn't sound interesting. I didn't look at it, and someone said, "You've got to look at it." It's Police Squad, and indeed, it was Police Squad, but it wasn't. Good enough. Huh? Yeah, it was very frustrating because everyone was good, connected with it and in it. But it just didn't have and it's really tough to put your finger on it. But the tone was off. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. There's, and there's so many movies that try to do it that couldn't do it. One thing about Leslie Nielsen is that, you know, I, I mean, if you go back and watch him in Day of the Animals, he puts on an amazing performance in that But I feel like once he, after he realized he could do comedy, he didn't quite get that what made him funny was playing it straight. And it it feels like in his later films, he just tried to go for the comedy. And a lot of times it didn't work.
1: Boy, do I agree with you. Um, (laughs) I was shocked by the movie The Naked Gun. Because the whole watchword, every second of every day, when we were writing Police Squad, is it's not to be either written as or played as a comedy. That's the fun. Do it straight, just like Airplane. And everyone was, uh, actors would come on the show and think, okay, I got to be funny, and they would be quickly disabused. Do not be funny. Read it straight. The words will do the work for you, the words and the visuals. Uh, And Leslie was brilliant at that. But then Naked Gun comes out and he's going, whoa, like that, right, and waving right. his arms. And it, and a lot of people loved it. It was Jerry Lewis and Jerry Lewis is yeah. funny, but it wasn't, in my mind, what Police Squad was.
0: Right. It was it was the streets of San Francisco, you know, uh, in color, but but, with, <laughs> you know, humorous things going on.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that in color at the beginning. God, yeah, that was me too. <laughs> Um.
0: <laughs> So uh, Chris doesn't – well, actually, I shouldn't say you don't. I I don't know if you know this story, but, David, can you tell us why uh, it got canceled? And uh, I'm sure the listeners – most listeners don't know. I know why, but –
1: Well, I mean, what you know is a legend. We're not 100% sure it's true, but word got out that one of the ABC executives was talking about uh, the show over dinner, and his little daughter said – uh, daddy, it's not funny. I mean, you can tell that because the little people in, even the little people inside the TV aren't laughing, meaning it didn't have a laugh track. <laughs> oh. oh, wow. That's
0: funny. That, and it was the gags. You had to actually pay attention to it, right? Oh,
1: that's very true. And that's my, been my line all, all over the years. The problem with it as a TV show is you had to watch it. My mother, for instance, never watched TV. She sat in front of the TV and she knitted. And she would occasionally look up. And if you look up occasionally, you're going to think it's a dramatic TV show. Right. (laughs) (laughs)
0: It's true. That's hilarious. So, Chris, do you have any more police squad questions for him? No, but uh,
2: I'd love to, um, uh, but I would like to know about one of the next things that you did, which was uh, Mobbus Take Manhattan. Uh, How'd you get involved working on that?
1: I had a friend who uh, uh, was uh, producing movies in New York. Uh, He had produced uh, a couple Woody Allen movies, and he was hired to do the Muppets Take Manhattan. And they decided they had uh, the script was all done, but they decided uh, they were going to have some guest star cameos as they had had in the previous movies Mm -hmm. and wanted to get someone to come in just to write the cameos. So uh, he thought of me and it was beneath me. I mean, please, the Muppets, they're not hip. I was very obsessed with being hip. And uh, I really wasn't interested. And he said, well, David, before you say no, listen to who we have. Dustin Hoffman, Lawrence Olivier, Christopher Reeve, Richard Pryor, Steve Martin, Lily Tomlin. By this point, of course, I was collapsed on the floor having gasping and spitting up blood. Right. I
2: mean, yes, yes, yes!
1: Boy, so I got
2: did tired. Oh, boy, did that change. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it did. So here's what happened. Dustin Hoffman evidently killed at parties doing his impression of Robert Evans, the production chief of Paramount Studios, who is is a very distinctive uh, affect. And by the way, there's a fantastic documentary about him called The Kid Stays in the Picture. Yes. Fascinating. (laughs) Really
2: good. Really good.
1: Anyway, so his Bobby Evans impression was killer, and he decided he was going to debut it on the big screen in the Muppet Take Manhattan, playing a theatrical producer. So uh, about a week after I'd been hired and it started, I'd already written uh, Lily Tomlin's scene and uh, a few others, and um, the word came down that Dustin Hoffman would not be doing it because he was afraid that Evans might take offense. By the way, he ended up doing it in a movie called Wag the Dog. That's his Bobby Evans impression. <laughs> <Right>. But anyway, <laughs> a funny thing happened. When Dustin Hoffman dropped out, every other celebrity dropped out. And we ended up with Art Carney, oh. um, Brooke Shields, Abney Coleman,
2: <laughs> Joan Abney Rivers, Coleman. Yeah. and there may
1: have been one other.
2: Oh, yeah. uh, Liza Minnelli.
1: What? oh I forgot she was in it yep I do remember I wrote a line for Ed Koch, yeah, yeah. uh who was famous for saying how am I doing so the line I wrote for him was how am I doing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the kind of writer i am
0: well that's clever
1: but anyway uh so uh, the guest stars were not oh and also um uh, uh shoot from at uh, the TV show Alice Linda lavin who is a oh yes wonderful, okay yeah, yeah. wonderful actress but i she had the Lily Tomlin part and she took one look at it and said, I can't do this. So I rewrote it uh, for her. And by the way, my <laughs> wife would kill me if I didn't mention here that Linda Lavin played a doctor who was treating Kermit who'd been uh, hit by a car and had lost right. his memory. Cause that happens with frogs. And <laughs> she, uh, there was a, a, She's supposed to examine him and then say a bunch of doctor stuff to um, give us some kind of cover, because uh, we, you know, it had to be legitimate in some way. Sure. Anyway, she wrote that. She wrote the doctor gobbledygook, and uh, wow. Linda, uh, a wonderful actress, oh, could wow. not memorize it. So we wrote it on a piece of paper and put it above Kermit's head. <laughs> but that scene actually really stands out in my mind, along with one other. Uh, that scene in the hospital was shot on the second floor of a midtown hospital in New York. Uh, and the second floor had been decommissioned. It was still an active hospital below, but on the upper floor, was completely deserted. They still had some equipment, which we were able to use. But the main thing is we shot this in July, and there was no air conditioning. Uh, Oh. Jim Henson was underneath the bed, because Kermit's lying in bed, with his hand stuck up. Kermit, oh, by the way, Frank Oz's line was uh, always, uh, I've spent half my life with my hand up a pig's ass. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But... uh, (laughs) Jensen had his hand stuck up. Kermit, that's where the photo of me was taken. Also, that's if you go right. to my website, <laughs> it's a photo of me and uh, uh, Kermit. I have it labeled uh, uh, David Mish and Kermit the Frog reconcile after their bitter salary dispute. Yeah. <laughs> in any case, uh, he, he comes up out of the bed between takes, drenched. It's like he just took a oh, bath. Wow. He's just bathed. I it bet.
2: was so difficult. I
1: bet. Uh, the <laughs> other thing I remember about that scene is there was a uh painting just off to the side uh of the bed to indicate that it was a hospital room and uh (laughs) i was kneeled inches away kneeling with my hand positioned artfully beneath my chin and my clipboard on my le- in my left hand and just being all the professional writer ready to leap in if i was needed in any way and after the first take we said well <laughs> so the uh, dp said well that's not usable and why because mish is in it i was reflected in it the- <laughs> i wish they'd use that take oh
0: that's too that's funny. funny you know what? I- My wife and I and my grandson rewatched that recently just in preparation for the show. And I didn't realize that she wasn't a celebrity at the time, but Gates McFadden plays Dabney Coleman's secretary at the beginning.
1: Oh my God, I did not know that.
0: Yeah. I'm like, I know her. Wait, she's the doctor from Next Generation.
1: (laughs) Yeah. What do you know?
0: Well, folks, I'm afraid we're going to have to take a break here. As I said at the top of the show, we talked for over two and a half hours with writer David Mish, and so we've broken it into two parts. Thank you so much for being a Patreon subscriber, and join us next month for part two. Also, please tell your friends to join our Patreon, as we'll be adding fun stuff as the months go on. Remember, this special filmmaker series of shows can only be heard by Patreon subscribers. For today, class is dismissed.
2: This now podcast is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. Sounds, music, and clips played during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders. All original content is copyright Jupiter Media.